Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And uh, we shouldn't, by any means, have any internet trouble. If you could see behind the scenes here, I actually am in a cabin nearby where I live. And um, I'm using the same internet that I normally do, but it seems to be working fine over in this location. It's a long story. I don't need to get into it. Um, There is a name for people that have a Luddite. I think that's what I might be, technical problems now and then. But um, I hope you are able to check out our blog this week. Um, Charles Lear always does a great job uh, in uh, various topics. And this week is the government-funded UFO study in France. So check that out. He also makes a um, an audio blog for the podcast stream, as well as uh, I put that up on YouTube each week. So um, And he does this uh, all this hard work of, as a labor of love. He'll be coming out with a book in a while. Um, I'll be out actually in uh, New Mexico in September with a friend. We're going to go out there and actually sit with Dave Marler, um, Charles Lear, and uh, some icons in the UFO world that are going to be joining us there then. That's something to look forward to. Tonight's guest is uh, we have Paul Kershon, and uh, he has a book. It's called Blueprint for Interstellar Travel. He's going to be talking a lot about that. It was inspired actually in the beginning of actually by a UFO. We're going to talk about that too. It's uh, it's all very interesting. And so he's joining us from the West Coast. He'll be on in just a minute. And I do want to thank everyone that helps out with the show. And anyone can do that over at patreon.com. That link's up on our website. And uh, we and we thank every single listener to the show. It's really grown uh, quite a bit. Um, it's coming up on the 10th year anniversary. I think it's 460. 64 shows this one might be but anyway it's been enjoyable all along I I never get tired of it and I really like exploring um, ideas and that's one of the reasons I have this guest on we have a lot of exceptional guests lined up as well ahead so what we're going to have next couple months are already booked some really great guests anyway uh, we are ready to uh, bring in the guest tonight Uh, welcome to the show Paul hi thank you Martin and so, Paul, I got to ask you, um, what uh, can you give the um, I, I know you're not on you haven't I haven't seen you on other podcasts. So, and that's another thing. I like to have fresh voices, you know, talk about this subject and other subjects uh, like what you're going to be discussing tonight. But what inspired you um, to do all this work? Because I know you came out with a book. I think it was something like 10 years ago. And uh, you learned from some of the stumblings in that book, yet you got yourself back up again and you put out another book. Um, and uh, you're the, the biggest part of the, the reason, from what I gather by reading uh, as much as I did, the reason you are doing these books is uh, to share information. You're not doing any promotionals or anything. You just want to share this information so it can get out there and and maybe someone uh, you gave me an analogy. Maybe someone can, uh, there it is, can can do something as uh, this as a foundation and move forward possibly. So if you would, tell us about yourself and, and, and what made you decide to do this. Right. So uh, I was actually an administrator at UCLA and uh, in the early days of the internet. And um, I was searching around. I was kind of bored one day and I I typed in a keyword, interstellar travel, and uh, on the top of the list, um, and we're probably using Netscape in those days, um, 
was a company, and it's it, the company's name was Unitel, and it, and it said something like, uh, we make uni- interstellar travel possible or something. So this really intrigued me, and um, I uh, there was an email address for um, a fellow, Larry Marr, and he was the CEO of the company. And on a lark, I uh, sent him an email. And I, I really didn't think I'd get a reply from the CEO of a company. Um, but, you know, very shortly after, um, he did reply in an email. And that was the uh, origin of a perhaps 15-year um, email interchange I had with Larry. Um, every day we would email, and he would often write quite lengthy uh, emails, um, you know, over 300 words. And uh, he was he was told me about um, kind of this whole story and, and what led to them, uh, this, this team of uh, a fellow named Michael Marr, uh, M- Michael Miller and a, a fellow Larry Marr to, um, to develop a company, to get incorporated, to get patents both in the U S and Japan and to uh, try to build an interstellar spaceship. Uh, to me, this was incredible. I mean, um, it, it was, you know, even to the present, you know, uh, who, who else is working on, you know, uh, an actual vehicle to do something like this. So, um, you know, it, it was amazing. And then is the process of like, why isn't this being communicated? And if it isn't communicated, then I, I felt um, an urgency and, and a, a drive to promote it myself. And uh, so what was the process? Did you use, uh, there was uh, this uh, Miller and Maurer, right? Yes. So, um, uh, Mr. Maurer has since deceased, uh, tragically, and um, uh, he was sort of an engineer fellow and a CAD designer. He said that he had um, uh, done CAD drawings for uh, lumber mills. Uh, he, he they both of these fellows live in Oregon, so that you know, it was the wood industry, lumber industry, and uh, so Mr. Marr was a, um, you know, a, a, a CAD designer, and then Mr. Miller was a uh, contract electrician, and uh, Mr. Miller is a person of, a, of an extraordinary intelligence, an extraordinary speed of intelligence, um, and, and it has a great depth of knowledge in physics and, and a number of fields, so. Um, you know, I wanted to hear their story. And uh, in fact, their story is that they had witnessed a, a UFO at close range, uh, perhaps 15 feet away. Um, it hovered in front of them. And then uh, it was from that and uh, and apparently some downloads that Mr. Um, Miller uh, developed this invention. So it's really an extraordinary story. I mean, this is the thing. I feel like there are small communities where, um, you know, amazing things are happening. I mean, you probably know people like this yourself. Small communities where incredible things are happening, and it's very hard to break through into mainstream science, mainstream media, uh, when you're trying to juggle a bunch of other things, uh, pay the rent, uh, advance your designs, et cetera. Now, can you get into deep detail about, what they have told you about their, their UFO sighting and, and the whole download thing. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I, uh, I can't 
go into great detail uh, because the sort of information as it has last stood is somewhat proprietary in that uh, they may want to uh, develop a story themselves. But um, in brief, uh, I, I guess I can say in, in roundabout terms, um, Michael uh, had some um, flash to call his friends early one morning and to uh, go out to, uh, I believe it's Mount Washington, and they, they drove out, and then he, um, I believe he thought of a certain place of going, and then um, shortly thereafter, they, they saw this uh, this probe. Now, I, I have a, a, a model of, of, this is a 3D printed model, you can see, and it looks something like this. Uh, and you notice it's a very different shape. It, it's, it's not like your typical rocket, of course. So, um, uh Again, both of these individuals, Mr. Moore and Mr. Miller, are extraordinary people who uh, were fighting extraordinary odds. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to help them. And, and how, were they, how were they received by themselves before you, you helped them? I mean, did they actually go into where they f- thought they were getting this information from or anything like that? Um. Well, uh, you know, it depended. It would depend on what audience they were speaking to. You know, <laughs> there is sort of like the insiders and the outsiders. Um, they did speak with some uh, government officials. In fact, I, I don't have all the details of that. Uh, Mr. Moore did write a book called Laser Propulsion. It may still be uh, available. Mr. Uh, Moore also wrote another book um, called Debris. Um, but you know. I, um, you know, uh, I feel very strongly in, in the whole um, UFO hypothesis or, or UAP hypothesis, uh, and so that was sort of quickly established between us, and so he was willing to share it. I don't believe he shared that with everyone. Yeah, yeah. So, what are your? I, I guess I'll ask you in the beginning. Are are your thoughts? And part of the reason that you've got involved in this is, are you, are you thinking that um, some of the propulsion that people uh, may be seeing as a UFO has a, has a possibility in, in some of these theories? Well, yes. I mean, um, you know, I think there's a consensus among a lot of people that, um, the concept of Newtonian-based physics of a back exhaust system, a rocket, uh, is ultimately, um, you know, 13th century physics, we say. Um, and, uh, you know, with, with the initial invention of, the, of, of uh, like, gunpowder, when they stuff gunpowder in a, ba- in a piece of bamboo and use it as fire rockets to uh, attack their enemies. So that was... You know, this is really ancient uh, technology, but, you know, certainly um, in the early 20th century, the uh, quantum physicists showed that there's Newtonian science and and something else. And you get into, um, you know, all the greats of the the quantum uh, world of Einstein, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, et cetera, and Born. And so... um, Many people and many from many angles uh, are working on, you know, new systems that are, that are different 
uh, than simply, um, you know, shooting uh, kerosene out the back of a, of a canister. Yeah. Um, I think uh, you had a term for it. Um, I forget reactionary or whatever you called it. Um, you know, the yeah, type back of reaction. Yeah. Back reaction. Yeah. And so what is the, um, I guess if you want to attack any part of, um, of these theories, um, you know, I, I, I know one thing, you know, when it comes to quantum uh, physics, there's so many unexplainable things. It's kind of like, you know, the, between what's a wave and are we all, you know, uh, you know, the particles, are we all just energy that, somehow sticks together or, you know, it's really bizarre, um, spooky stuff when it comes to all the quantum physics. Yeah. Um, it, it is not a trivial field. It is, uh, you know, I struggle to understand stuff. I look up stuff on uh, Wikipedia. Um, I've often spoken to people who know quite a lot more than myself. And so, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot to learn for all of us, and uh, but it's fascinating, uh, you know, like like you just mentioned, how, you know, is it a particle? Is it a wave? You know, what you know, the the mystery of um, action at a distance, you know, and entanglement. Um, so it, it's curious, and it, it's where things are headed. Um, so yeah, we we, we all, um, you know, it's an interesting field. Let me say that. And, and, and let me just add um, that, you know, a couple of caveats. I meant to mention this at the beginning. So I'm a teacher. Uh, that's my bread and butter job. And then I um, am a writer and I've written a few books and I, I have some more books uh, in, in line to, to uh, publish. And uh, I'm not a trained academic physicist and um uh, also, that the ideas that I express are, are um, uh, solely from Mr. Miller and Mr. Marr. Uh, and I, I'm just described that, um, you know, I have some art skills, some graphic skills. Uh, it's a painting I'm working on in the background. Um, and Very nice. Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, th- those are where my skills lie. And, and I feel I'm an open-minded person. Yeah, open-minded, open-mindedness is something where um, that's how people can seem to move forward, you know, with about any part of science. They have to have an open mind to try things, failure, all that, um, and learn from the failures and accept defeat when needed. Um, what is a, what does the term quantum tunneling mean? I've, I've heard that term before. Right. Well, that was... Uh a term created a, a while ago. Um, and th- the idea was that you had a, a particle in, in one place um, and then um, it, it would go to another place, uh, although it didn't have enough energy to do so. Um, it was, you know, this is the thing where they, they described it as like a hill that, that the particle didn't have the energy to kind of, go over the hill or, you know, have enough energy to, to switch from one orbital to another in, in atomic, um, in, in quantum terms maybe. And, um, and yet it did so. So, and then they found there was a probability that it did so. I mean, it, it not, it wouldn't always work. And, and, you know, but some of the time 
th there was a probability that it could go over this from one side of the hill to another or from one you know place to another without having the energy to do so the the, the tricky thing and, and for which I get scolded when I talk to um, you know trained scientists is this you know very precise use of li of language and so um, you know the, the term tunnel is just one way to describe something um, but there's no like sort of actual tunnel it's just sort of a way of visualizing something um, you know mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So why don't you kind of like explain um, the thoughts on your, your, your book, um, the blue, blue book, a blueprint for <laughs> interstellar travel kind of um, I, I, I brought in some of your illustrations. I don't know if there's any you want to cue me on and I'll, I'll pop them up as, as we go along if you'd like to. And um, you know, for this is get, can get a little tech heavy. So, but um, I have your book. And I do appreciate the way you laid it out. So just about anybody, or I can easily understand what you're trying to say. And um, that that that's probably not all that easy to explain um, these strange things in that way. Well, thank you. Yes, um, I think the first thing is to is to say that um, that that the process is is not a back exhaust system. It's not a, a rocket that's push forward. And that goes, uh, along with, you know, mo more modern, um, propulsion systems that use, uh, ions and uh, other systems that, um, you know, still have this sort of back exhaust propulsion system or a solar sail system that's sort of, um, where, uh, photons are pushing a panel and, and the, um, the, the object is moving that way. So this is entirely different. This is you know, very much based on quantum properties. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that's the first thing. It's just important to say that uh, th this is also not an Alcubierre drive. Uh, you know, the people who have an interest in this field are probably familiar with Alcubierre. And there, there, are, many, uh, there are many ideas being, you know, um, worked on at this time. Uh, and, and ours is just one of them. Um, I, I want to say uh, also before I begin, I, I'm sorry for the long introduction, but the, um, uh, during the process of creating my book, again, I'll show you the, what it looks like here. Um, and uh, here we go. And so I, I got uh, about uh, three PhD, you know, academically um, trained scientists and I had about two um, um, people with the mechanical and electrical engineering uh, look at the book. Maybe it's about three people like uh, with um, master's degrees and they gave me uh, various, uh, you know, critiques and, and some were um, mildly supportive. Um, some were uh, questioning it at that time and one fellow who did have a PhD in plasma physics said this could work. Uh, so that was a great boost to me. And um, uh, unfortunately, I've signed an agreement with that fellow that I'm not allowed to mention his name. So, you know, this is another constraint of, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. But in any case, um, I did thereafter publish the book and I sent it to the chair of a physics department 
uh, an interesting fellow because I, I later found he was associated with um, TTSA. Um, and uh, so uh, he said, no, that this, this, as it stands, would not work. So after that, um, I decided to kind of pull back from um, uh, further promoting the book. And um, because, uh, you know, the, the, I didn't want to muddy the waters of uh, you, you apology, you know, <laughs> they, they, they used to be you apology, now it's you apology. And so uh, I didn't want to make things any worse for um, the field in respect to the field. Uh, I've since come back from that opinion, uh, and I'll explain that. Um, but I wanted to give you that, for, that a little bit of intro that, uh, as it stands, this book will not help you build a interstellar spaceship in your backyard. Um, it is uh, it is a foundation, and, and I'll talk about that shortly. So, uh, sorry for the long intro. No, um, no, we've got all we've got hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to show you a, a picture that that looks like like this. Do you have this picture here? Yes, I will bring that up. Um, Let's see. Uh, show that one more time, if you would. Yeah, sure. Uh, yes, I have this this right here. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we say that our probe, and, and again, it has this, um, you know, a teardrop shape. Uh, I don't know if they can see that. But with um, a lens divided into three parts. And um, the uh, probe is aligned at, a, uh, actually, not we're not ready for that picture yet. If you could, okay. uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, you can go on to the next uh, image. Actually, you had the uh, right. So the probe is aligned so that it's facing this uh, planet, and photons, uh, little particles of light, are um, you know are going to hit the front of the uh, probe, which we call the lens, and uh, so. Once they hit that lens, there uh, an individual uh, photon is uh, isolated. Um, so now uh, that is existing technology. In fact, I, I spoke with a, a Harvard lab who told me um, how they isolate individual uh, photons. So that is existing technology. Anyway, once a single uh, photon is isolated. So you see there's that group there, and then we're going to just isolate one of them. And then what happens next is we put that charge of that photon on the skin, on the surface of the um, of the probe. Now, uh, if you can go to the next one, um, and uh, yeah, I think that picture worked. So you see that there's uh, minus signs. Uh, those are supposed to be minus signs on the, the skin of the probe. And then you see plus signs uh, on what will be an extended beam, a, a laser beam of three kind of lasers um, shooting forward. Again, uh, a, a minus on the ship and a plus in a extended uh uh, what we say a laser extension with a with a positively charged positron endpoint. Uh, there's a, some technical terms here, but I think you get a sense of that. Uh, you might go on to the next picture. Uh, yeah. So what is really going on? In that last picture, you saw how that there were um, uh, laser beams and they were turning. 
and they are turning both individually and as an ensemble. So uh, you see individually, the, uh, there's a green light laser, a red light laser, and a blue light laser. Uh, two of them are going one way, one is going the other way, and the whole ensemble is turning. Uh, so now you can go back to that second picture again. You talked uh, about this one? Yeah. Well, okay. No, the, the, yeah, that one there. So you see how, you know, it's coming out of the uh, probe. It, they're turning and they're spinning like that. And what we say is that um, uh, there's a lot going on here. There's um, uh, a focus because it's a lens. It's able to kind of focus the energy. Uh, and also um, because of the properties of the lens, we can, can create these lasers that come to a point. Uh, I'm going to go on now. I, I didn't give you these uh, photos, um, uh, but I, I'm going to briefly show them to you. Uh, so the, there's something inside the probe that enables the uh, lens to vibrate, and that creates uh, the, those lasers. And then uh, let's see. So uh, as um, the, the lasers are produced, they also um, the, there's uh, as the lens vibrates, it creates something called phonons. You, you, you may have, uh, uh, you know, the old record player, when the thing vibrates, you're creating phonons. And then um, we're going to go on a little bit. So this, um, this point, uh, it, there's a positive, um, positively charged point at the other end of this um, these three laser beams that are focused on this point. So we, we say that, or, or I should more correctly say that Mr. Miller says that this creates what's called a Dirac string. So kind of on one side, you have something called an electron. And on the other side, you have something called a positron. And this forms what, what uh, Mr. Miller calls a, a dion. And so, um, we're, we're beginning to, um, you know, you, if you want to use the term tunnel, you know, we're, we're sort of creating a bridge um, in, in space there. Now, the interesting thing here, uh, I'm going to show you something here. i got to find a right picture. Um, but we say that, um, that you have an original photon that came out of that um, probe. Uh, if you go to that first shot of your, your first or second slide there, uh, actually the second slide. Yeah, so you see that those photons are hidden at that probe like that. And so um, let me see. I'm looking for something here. Uh, in any case, uh, those photons in, in uh, Mr. Miller's uh, understanding, if I have this correct, uh, are made up of an electron and positron. So what we're doing is we're swapping our probe with a um, probe in, um, oh, here, here's a picture I was looking for, uh, with a, uh, uh, the electron of a, of a distant photon. Here's an example. I'm speaking, you know, it's, it's maybe getting uh, confusing, so I want to uh, clarify something here. So... I don't know if you can see that. Imagine that there's uh, two couples on a dance floor, and 
they're dancing together. Then, then the lights go dark, and uh, it, it, while the the um, the lights go dark, that the couple switch partners. So essentially, uh, it's just it's a way, uh, um, um, like a way to describe this process here. So you you have an electron and a positron from the uh, distant source. Uh, you're creating an artificial electron and positron with our probe and endpoint, and then you're swapping partners. And then this the probe is at the remote place, many light years away. That's in a, in <laughs> a way, is it something? Is it similar to like quantum entanglement? Well, um, I mean, it's like a reactionary thing. You're 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 talking about. It seems like. Well, it's more of a, maybe you could say, access to uh, uh, interdimensional space. <laughs> I think it might be more accurate to say. Uh, hmm. And um, that, it, 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 like, Mr. Miller has told me that space doesn't exist, you know. And again, these are, you know, kind of abstract t- concepts to uh, understand. But, um, you know, w- we normally think of, like, Wow, like we, you know, we walk down the street, we get on a bus, it takes us a half hour to get into town. And in that understanding of space, you know, it takes us time to get from one place to the other. But let's say in a dream or something, uh, you're in one place and then suddenly you're at another place. And so, um, you know, I, you know, we don't really understand dreams, but, um, you know, that, that would be an analogy. It, it's accessing a different dimension to achieve transport. So is that what this is? Is this basically like an interdimensional uh, hypothesis for travel? I'd cautiously say yes. And cautiously because I'm not a trained scientist and, and nor can I convey the intelligence and logic of, of Mr. Miller entirely. Hmm. And, uh, as far as you know, you mentioned that um, you know other people are looking at similar things. Would you would you say this is like on the table somewhere, or some parts of it on the table somewhere, where um, say in Skunk Works or something like that, someone is maybe trying to develop something? Uh, you know, uh, there's a group called uh, APEC A P E C, and uh, they have weekly uh, meetings and. Uh, there's some pretty extraordinary stuff going on with them. Um, and I know a, a number of inventors. I, I'm an inventor myself. There, there's a lot going on, um, you know, on the civilian side, certainly on the um, government side. Uh, there's a lot going on. Um, and, 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 of course, it's, it's debatable what these um, – recent UAP, UAP reports, um, you know, represent. Yep. And well, while you just mentioned it, so what do you, what do you think about the recent report? What's your opinion? Have you looked into it? Right. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm laughing because, you know, there's so much tension in this thing. Um, it, it was such a big buildup, you know, 180 days, you know, what's going to happen? Are they going to, Spill the beans have been we've been waiting for for thirty years, and so for all of us in the UAP community, it was a great disappointment. Um, or, or I, 
you know, I don't know if I can speak for everybody, but I think for a majority of people, it was a great disappointment. Uh, and yet, uh, if you scratch the surface, you saw that out of the 144 um, uh, sightings, only one could be explained as a balloon. Right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I am a, a, a passionate person and an advocate for um, UAP disclosure. I write letters to Congress and I encourage other people to do so. And, um, and I, I'm, I have some other activism ideas as well. When you and I were talking shortly off, off air, I was hoping to be able to pull up uh, Lawrence Krauss, uh, you know, uh, an amazing um, theoretical physicist uh, from Canada, um, had his take on the report. And it was all kind of um, kind of poo-pooing the UFO community and how ridiculous, ridiculous um, we were. Uh, I wish I could pull that up. I'll try to pull it up at some point. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes. But along those lines, you know, he he brings up uh, Mick West, who seems to be the go-to debunker for all of these uh, people. But, you know, Mick West is not a scientist. Mick West is a gamer, someone who creates, you know, games. Um, but, uh, you know, he has done some really good work, but he's done a lot of, you know, senseless debunking. And, and it's... Uh, you know, I, I think he, he's kind of a, a pain in the neck to a lot of us in this field that really want the answers. And, and um, you know, I saw him write a comment the other day that something along the lines where, you know, everyone always says that he's calling everything birds, um, you know, and it's kind of, you know, kind of true. You know, I mean, he's he's um, I understand, you know, debunking. There is definitely a place for that. There's definitely a place for skepticism especially when it comes to all this. But um, I also think that people can go too far and uh, be closed-minded and, you know, like they should know if uh, anyone else knows, then they should know type of thing. Yeah, yeah. I want to address these uh, very points, the the points that you're uh, bringing up uh, very directly because I'm quite familiar with them and and I understand them uh, after years of uh, experiencing them. So here I wrote down, what are the five uh, social t- taboos in apology? One is uh, don't do anything that might harm your reputation. So in the academic science world, the scientists are reluctant to do anything that might harm you, their reputation that they worked hard to, uh, to keep polished. Another thing is don't speak in public about paranormal experiences you have had where other people can overhear you. Uh, some people will be scared. Some people will be uh, dismissive. Uh, you, you find that you have to tread carefully about w- what you can share with others. Another thing is uh, don't try to break the ice with a colleague who you sense uh, are clueless and uninformed. So there, this is a reality that many people uh, are clueless and uninformed. And it's, uh, it, it can feel like a, a provocation to your own uh, understanding. And so when you, you try to break the ice with them, they, they clam up and turn away. These are, this is a reality, what happens. And then uh, you may have family or significant others uh, who you think you can change them because you're close to them. Uh, that may not always be the case. And, and again, you also have to consider their reality and, and the difference in you know ontologies. Uh, perspectives on reality. 
And lastly, uh, don't expect the media to be interested. Um, I, I actually contacted the New York Times about another matter uh, yesterday, and I spoke to a fellow and I said, you know, why isn't there more coverage of this? And he said, uh, oh, well, we do cover it. Uh, you know, we actually had a little uh, podcast about the uh, report. And I said, well, why wasn't it on the front of the you know, front page? And he says, well, he didn't really answer that one. And so um, uh, I, I said, we, they do cover it. And I said, you, you, there isn't that much coverage. And then he said, well, uh, we may not cover it as much as you'd like to, uh, but we cover this. You know, that, that there are many other pressing issues and, and um, you know, we, we don't always cover this. And then um, uh, I said, well, listen, you know, th- this is something that could, that could transform all of civilization. And you have remarks by um, uh, Mr. Brenner, the uh, former head of the CIA, and you have uh, certainly Harry Reid and uh, now Obama, Hillary Clinton, a lot of, uh, of course, Lou and um, uh, uh, the, I forget his name, the other fellow. Um, who, who Chris Mellon. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. I, I skipped my mind for the moment. But, you know, these people are, are really sticking their necks out and uh, they're saying extraordinary things. And the disconnect is powerful. And uh, I, I, you know, welcome every opportunity myself and, and for others to uh, pinpoint this disconnect. You have top people saying, um, you know, that th- there's some reality to the UFO, uh, UAP hypothesis and other people who are dismissive. So, you know, certainly this should be a, something that it should be addressed in the media and it's not. Yes. I, I listened to that podcast you're mentioning on the, the New York times did called the daily on the UAP report. And, uh, it was, uh, it was sort of snarky a little bit. Um, it was, and, it was. Yeah. And also, um, the, there were, I mentioned last week that there were two podcasts that I'd listened to on the way down to the Berkshires when I was there. Um, and that was one of them. And both podcasts said the same thing about Roswell, that it was, a definitive that it was the mogul balloon, you know, the spy Russian spy. Right, right. Clearly these people have not studied the field. That's right. Uh, you know, that, that was just one of the, um, well, dare I say one of the lies that the government told, um, um, you know, one of the five lies that they, they, they talked about when it comes to Roswell, one of the five cover-ups, basically. Um, so that we are only left with the uh, struggle to raise consciousness, uh, you know, politely, respectfully, um, with kindness and patience, but persistently. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, no, thanks for your input on that. I'm glad I'm glad we're, we're kind of on the same page when it comes to that. It's uh, it it's a major story. You're right. You know, I mean. My friend I was talking to the other day said, uh, she said along the lines, well, you know, she's out there talking to people that normally don't have an interest in UFOs, but asking them, hey, have you seen on the news, you know, about this UAP report and, you know, the task force um, looking into and all that? And they said, no, no, it's not really, you know, for something as extraordinary as it really is, it's really not getting the coverage. Right. It's a binary thing. You're on or you're off, you know, 
and and it, there, there is yes. gradation there. Uh, yeah. You know, and this is the uh, struggle that we, those interested in this field face. Um, you know, the, <laughs> it, it's a strange thing. I, I want to follow up on, on the, these things. Uh, what you will find is that there's dismissal and non-validation. There's a lack of interest by friends, families, co-workers, supervisors of what you personally experience with great intensity. There's a lack of comprehension and full support. Uh, by by those whom whom one knows, there's a lack of academic feedback from academically trained people. There's no commonality of terms. It's difficult in determining the right specialty. There's low interest in the uh, UAPs. In fact, I, I knew a professor, and he, he a number of years ago I brought it up, and he was quite dismissive of it when I brought it up to him. There's often a rudeness in media venues that you thought would be sympathetic. Uh, I, I've tried to reach different alternative medias um, and uh, media venues. I wasn't able to get through, and um, and yet, you know, the, the curiously, uh, the, the right wing media, the Fox News and such, uh, have picked this up. And then there's the economic frustration that you don't have resources to develop and convey your ideas in a powerful way. This is another critical issue. So I just want to validate those experiences for others like myself who are in this position. Mm-hmm. Very good. Hey, um, there's been someone asked, a couple of people have asked in the chat if you are familiar with who Dr. Eric Davis is. Yes. In fact, I met him. Uh, you know, I I don't know him personally, but I, I, I did meet him. Um, and a uh, very bright guy. Um, uh, in fact, I said, you know, I, I have kind of a, um, uh, or my friends have a theory for interstellar travel, and uh, you know, we, we'd like to develop um, the, the math to defend it. And uh, I said, uh, you know, what do you suggest? He said, he said, learn it. <laughs> huh. So uh, you know, I mean, he said it gently and, and respectfully, but um, you know. <laughs> I'm uh, far from being able to develop all the math, but um, Davis is, uh, you know, a very interesting character. He's um, uh, uh, said some th- some things in the New York Times article that were, um, uh, you know, interesting and provocative, and he, he sort of uh, goes to the edge and comes back. Um, uh, I respect the man. He's he's another extraordinary man in this extraordinary time. Yeah. I like what you just said. He goes to the edge and comes back. <laughs> um, so getting back to, you mentioned, um, there's some, uh, actually there's a couple of questions in chat. I'm going to pull up in just a minute, but uh, going back to what you said earlier, the the downloads, I mean, this is something that I've heard talk about. It seems kind of um, more recently, but I've heard people say that, you know, all of a sudden they have this idea that springs up and, you know, right after a UFO event, which I think is fascinating. Is that something you, you know, besides uh, the story that those two gentlemen told you, Miller and Maurer, did you ever look into if other people have claimed that as well? Well, yes. And in fact, I was reading some interesting things yesterday and read it. And often these downloads are um, kind of vague, um, you know, altruistic, um, gestures of like, um, 
you know, um, uh, heal the earth and, <laughs> you know, we all know that. And, and so, um, you know, I myself might have had some experience, something like that years ago. And, and maybe also similarly, I, I had a sense of like um, a desire to help others after that experience. But, uh, you know, who knows? But what we could say is that the, um, the, the, the other, <laughs> the other, whatever it may be, and various people use this term, the other, uh, interacts at the level of consciousness. And um, I want to, um, yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit. So, so first, let me kind of try to answer your question. So, um, what, like, what do I think of these download things? I think, um, you know, some are, are, are rather vague, ambiguous uh, generalizations, and some are seem to be quite specific. And I, and what intrigued me about um, uh, Mr. Miller is that he seemed to have gotten very specific um, knowledge to enable him to get a patent. Really? That, that's pretty amazing. You know, and when it comes to, you, you know, sometimes you, when you look back in history, you wonder how certain people like Tesla and someone like that could have all these amazing theories. You know, there's the uh, alternating current supposedly he scratched out on a, uh, sand with a stick, you know, while it just came to him like that. And it's, you know, it's almost like, uh, how do these people get these ideas and their genius? You know, it doesn't, I'm not saying it comes from aliens, but it sure is pretty curious how some people just have this amazing gift, I guess. Right. Like, you know, we all know the, the mathematician, uh, Ramanujan, uh, you know, it came up with extraordinary mathematics, uh, you know, ideas that sent him from a village in India to the, you know, centers of mathematics in England at the time. And um, Einstein described uh, the way, I believe Einstein said that um, he came up with this theory of relativity. He said he experienced it viscerally. He had a visceral sensation, you know, his his muscles, you know, something sort of uh, blew through his muscles and he came up with these ideas. So, yeah, you know, in the next 20 years, we may have a better handle on what all this is all about. Yeah, it seems like the more we learn, the less we know about reality. I feel that very strongly. I uh, I realize I know very little. Yeah, yeah. And that goes back to, you know, what you talked early on about, you know, particles, whether it's a wave or, or mass. And that also, you know, I'd like to uh, at some point we can touch on that because mass is always, always seems to be the issue in high speed travel. Um, so here's a question that I, I'm just not familiar with this. Uh, what are your thoughts on project green glow? Do you happen to, do you happen to know what that is? I sure do. And it's an excellent question. Uh, there is an excellent BBC uh, documentary on project green, green glow. Uh, it's not uh, readily available, but I uh, have seen it. Um, here's the thing, you know, there's a fellow who was working on, uh, an idea for anti, you know, uh, gravity or gravity control. Uh, he was dismissed. He struggled with it for many years. And then at the end of this very provocative and mysterious, uh, documentary by the BBC, um, 
they, they say, you know, and, and here's evidence that they can uh, control gravity without any details of like the technical um, aspect of it. So what's going on? That, that's, I don't know. Um, but Project Green Glow is interesting. So what do you mean control gravity? Uh, that, that, that's pretty bizarre. I mean, that would be, um, that would definitely be an answer for so many things, you know, energy, travel, you know, it just seems like if you control gravity, you can control about anything. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it's been a quest for, you know, centuries. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think really, I think I'm correct in saying that only recently has uh, have gravity waves been discovered. And, and um, you know, it's just a very slow understanding of what gravity is. Um the Higgs boson and, um, you know, but, you know, it, it's rich for exploration. We don't know. I, yeah. I, I don't know. There are people who probably do know, but not me. <laughs> yeah. 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 You just mentioned the Higgs boson and that that's just another um, fascinating thing. And, and how far down do these things go? You know, that type of thing is just uh, another fascinating, um, you know, uh, another bizarre thing that we've discovered you know, within the last so many years and uh, you know, more, I think more and more will be coming along in that way. Just to let people know in the chat, if you want to ask a question, uh, please put it in all caps. And at the last half hour of the show, we're going to be going into break in about five minutes here, but in the last half hour of the show, we'll be taking calls if you'd rather save your questions for them. But if you have a question as we're going along, please put it in caps. um, So I can, um, I'll, I'll catch it and see it and put it up if it's an appropriate time for it. Um, so I'm glad that you, you, you actually have an interest in, you know, the UFO topic. I think when I was uh, talking to you back and forth in the beginning, uh, figuring out if you'd make a great guest for the show, um, that topic came up, but um, have you, you mentioned something about a possible um, download situation, but have you actually yourself had any type of UFO unexplained uh, sightings? Well, yes, I have. Um, I was uh, riding on the uh, 405 freeway in California near Carson, and uh, I saw a gigantic um, circular shadow on the highway. And, you know, as in a lot of California, the skies are clear blue. Right. I saw uh, from a distance I could see a a circle on the highway. And then as I approached, um, I saw that it covered about two or three lanes and I looked in the sky from distance and, you know, as I drove toward it and I saw nothing in the sky. So I don't know. I can't explain that. That was very strange. Um, Mm. You know, if something has a shadow, then there has to be something making the shadow. And as I passed under the shadow, there was a lot of static electricity uh, and um, kind of my hair stood on end and, uh, and another time I saw what appeared to be just sort of a, a little dash in the sky and it was um, motionless. This was when this was in the 1980s. And I pointed out to uh, I was at school in school at the time and I pointed out to my peers and um, none of them were interested. I mean, and I said, <laughs> like, huh. there's a, a white dash in the sky. It's not moving. <laughs> Why isn't anybody interested, you know? And so, and it was that remarkable thing of switch on, switch off. And then 
it was un, it was interesting that uh, out of about 30 students, uh, there was one other student, a uh, woman who was also curious about it herself. And um, she uh, she stood and watched uh, this white object with me for a while. And uh, it's interesting to one might point out that she um, seemed to be a socially conscious and socially aware person. She was doing various social issue documentaries. And uh, the, the other students that I was working with um, had more sort of uh, commercial interests. And who knows? I, there may be a connection with a certain you know, personality type. Yeah. So did this thing ever move or anything? No, it didn't. But I later uh, saw there was some astronomer on the East Coast, I think in the uh, mid-Atlantic states, who was a um, astronomer, and he had taken pictures of it, and it was the same thing I had seen. And uh, some people had said, you know, oh, that looks like some kind of Google blimp or something. But this was in the 1980s before Google had become Google, <laughs> yeah. the early 80s. And, you know, so uh, it, it was validating to see that someone else had seen the same thing I had seen. Uh, you know, it looked it looked the same. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Well, well, uh, we're just about ready to go into break here. But um, the, the thing about I, I just wanted to ask you real quickly is uh, – the when you saw the shadow in the road, you know, a lot of times I've, I've mentioned on this show and my thoughts are that there's only so much of the spectrum that we can see. And there's possibly out things outside the spectrum that are right in front of us that we can't even notice, you know, and, and I'm wondering um, if uh, if your thoughts were that um, this was something that was there, but you just couldn't see it. Sure. You know, some kind of stealth, something, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I I visually didn't see anything, but I did see a shadow. And um, it, it was curious that it was right on the highway. So I would think a lot of other people would have seen it as well. Right, right. Excellent. Well, it's time to go into break. And I just want to mention that uh, during this break here, since I thought we were going to be talking about uh, – you know, interstellar travel, et cetera. I decided to play a clip um, that is with uh, Alan Bean, who was the fourth person on the moon. This is just a, a three and a half minute clip of him talking about what it was like. I recorded with Alan Bean uh, several years ago um, about his artwork, actually. And uh, here's the clip now. So if you're over there at um, KGRA Radio, we'll be right back right after these messages. Um, what? What was it like to stand on the moon and look up at Earth? I mean, that is that just beyond words? Well, it, I don't know if it's beyond words or not, but it is very science fiction when you're doing it. I mean, it's, you're there and you're saying, I was saying, this, this is the moon. That is the Earth. It was hard to believe. It was true. Uh, although it, I knew it was true, I was standing there looking at it. But still, it seems so uh, improbable and impossible up till you know we actually did it uh, four months before, back in 1969. Neil and Buzz mm -hmm. were on the moon in July, and we went in November. Pete Conrad and I, and so uh, it has a 
kind of a surreal quality to it from the point of view that these things were impossible ever since we were born and we knew that when we were little kids and we knew it as we grow up and we knew it when we were young men and, and finally we said, well, we're going to try to do this. We're going to do this. So it's, uh, it's kind of uh, amazing to us even. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons there's not good descriptions of the descriptions of the feelings is because they were so uh, impossible to to believe yourself, even though you're doing it. And mm-hmm. so, as I say, I would be saying, you know, this is the moon. I'd look down at my blueprint. This is the moon, mm-hmm. and I'd look up and I'd say, that is the Earth. I'll tell you this, it's. 239,000 miles away. That's a long, long way. And you have to hope that the people put your rocket together correctly. The little old ladies that sewed up your space suit, they did a good job. (laughs) Your neck is way out when you go on a space mission. Uh, You know things can go wrong. You just are saying, this is worth, to me, the risk, and I just hope nothing goes wrong that can't be fixed or that would be fatal. So you know that, but you don't think about it very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the last question I have for you about the moon, has anyone ever confronted you about this silly moon conspiracy thing? Oh, sure. People <laughs> do it. They usually uh, say things like, I've got an aunt that, uh, that doesn't believe you went to the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I... I'm a believer in letting people be who they want to be. If they don't want to believe, go, it's okay, it doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah. You know, you don't, they don't believe it, well, I, I'm tell your aunt to good luck, or tell your aunt that, you know, hold on to that belief. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not the way I see it, and uh, not the way I remember it, but it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. I would never, ever try to convince her a uh, a clip from Alan Bean. That's an excerpt of a, a full interview I did with him about his his beautiful artwork. As you saw up on the screen there, if you're watching on uh, YouTube or Facebook, uh, that is just incredible. His work was so realistic, and he's the only one that ever walked on the moon that is painting these pictures. Wow. Uh, well, what a nice attitude! Really here we go. Talking him. Two, one, go. All right, welcome back. This is Martin Willis. And my guest tonight is uh, Paul Kirsch. And uh, we are discussing uh, a lot of topics. Um, glad to say that we're um, talking as well about the UFO topic. And um, um, because uh, they're, they're the, one of the main things I always hear, you know, physicists or astrophysicists um, or astronomers talk about when they're skeptical, which I believe, you know, they have every right to be skeptical about, you know, how UFOs get here is the vastness of space. It's not even um, something that we can comprehend in any type of way. Um, So um, I've said this before um, with an astrophysicist that was on this show at one point, uh, Jeffrey Bennett said that he was working on a model and the model was that the sun would be the size of a grapefruit um, in, um, I, I want to say he said Maryland, um, right around Washington, D.C. 
So it's sitting in Washington, D.C., the size of a grapefruit. Um, the earth um, next to that is the size of the ball and a ballpoint pen. Now you go all the way over to California, and that's the first star, the closest star to us. That's four and a half light years away. So if you can kind of imagine the sun being the size of a grapefruit and um, us being the size, the little teeny tiny size of a ball, ball on a ballpoint pen, and then all the way over to the West Coast to California, that's how far the distance is of the uh, nearest star to us. So I understand why a physicist would say, you know, it's impossible. You know, it would take us four and a half years at light speed to get to the nearest star. So, and as far as we know, there's no type of travel that will even reach near light speed. And then you have all the elements of the, the time uh, variance and all that. So um want to hear your, your thoughts on everything. I just blab- babbled. You were listening, right? Of course, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So, well, I, uh, I want to say that, you know, our, uh, the, the theory of, of transport that Mr. Miller uh, proposes and that I have uh, struggled to understand over a number of years and, and mi- minimally have understood, um, you know, requires us to take a very different perspective on space. And, and I have a, a, some specific information here. There's something called the Bourne and Jordan paper. It was published in the American Journal of Physics in 2009. And here's a quote. Heisenberg's bold idea was to retain the classical position coordinate with a quantum theoretical quantity. The new position quantity contains information about the measurable line spectrum of an atom rather than the observable orbit of the electron. So... You know, with all, it may sound like a lot of wordy gobbledygook, but to kind of get to the heart of it, part of what we're doing here is defining the place of something by the energy spectrum of something. And this will relate to navigation and uh, transport. Uh, you know, we get stuck in this perception of like that the, uh, you know, that, you know, these vast distances, you know, okay, we, that's one way to look at it. You know, it, 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 we're talking about a sort of phenomenological perspective here. And, you know, th- there's another way to look at this. And so, um, like in, in, in that Born Jordan paper, uh, to, to my understanding, he's pointing out that we're, we're not specifically saying like an, an object is, has a certain position we're saying object has a certain energy and that defines the position. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a different interpretation of how things work and and it's the, it's, it's abandoning the rocket system. It's abandoning like it, you have to, um, you know, you get in a rocket, it takes time, takes three months to get to Mars. No, there is another way, you know, and, and I want to bring up another thing here. Um, like I, I was telling uh, uh, Martin this earlier, th- th- there's a parable that came to mind. And that was that like, uh, you can imagine a time, you know, many centuries ago, perhaps in a certain mythic time, where one fellow uh, created like a, a wooden cart. And that cart um, had four sides to it and a, and a platform floor. And then it uh, also had four 
uh, wheels, but those wheels w- were square. And so I say that all the uh, pundits and professionals, uh, the sages and savants, uh, were critical of the fellow for, for proposing a cart. And they said, you know, what, what do you mean you can transport, you know, something with this? It's a box it, and it doesn't move. It's, you, you push it and it's really hard to push. And then, you know, maybe had a friend or a sympathetic um, person or a, a wise person who said, well, what happens if we start to sand the edges of those wheels a little bit? And, um, you know, he, he struggled to sand that square wheels a little bit. And, um, uh, you know, gradually they became sort of more oval. And you pushed it and, and hey, you could suddenly you could move that cart. And then so people had to see it. You know, and and people had to struggle against the consensus view about how things work, uh, and and this is the case. Um, and indeed, like, how does science advance? You know, I repeat it again: How does science advance without these stumbles and falls and short advancements? And so, although my book, uh, you know, again, it will not enable you to build an interstellar spaceship in your backyard. Uh, I believe it's a first step, and and I, uh, you know, would encourage people to check it out. the The beginning of the book is available for free on Amazon. You can kind of start to read it and get to know a sense of of where I stand about things, and also um, uh, how the inventors, uh, some of the struggles of the inventors. So I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. I I spoke up. Uh, I spoke earlier about. Um, Lawrence Krauss um, in his uh, his article that came out in uh, it was in uh, uh, Quillette.com and uh, the title of it is whatever it is it ain't aliens um, so and I think just the title alone already shows um, there's there's uh, did, did anywhere in the uh, a preliminary assessment um, did it say this it's not aliens. It's not extraterrestrial. Um, you know, I mean, he talks about the, the shiny flying objects and, you know, and it's just pushing it all off like um, and, and saying, calling people like myself, a UFO enthusiast heralded the report as it was the first official evidence of possible extraterrestrial intelligence. While the media forum around the world focused on the large number of official sightings remain unexplained. And, but Anyway, um, you know, I, I have a great response to that fellow. Uh, and this is, I have a friend, his name is Sam Millinder, and he's an extraordinary guy. He's, um, uh, he's an inventor himself, and he's, he has, he's working on some extraordinary inventions that I hope we see in the near future. Anyway, he's also a musician. And so we were talking about this very thing about, you know, closed-minded people. And he says, they're not musicians. <laughs> he says... He said, "For a musician, um, you know, you know, think of the the early jazz days. They'll switch from one chord to the other, and everybody in the, in the classical musicians of the time would say, you know, you can't go from you know a, a minor chord to a major chord or whatever you know the musical way of expression is, you know." And the jazz musician said, "Yes, you can, and here it is, you know." And, and then so it's like. Uh, his response was like, they're not musicians and you have to show it to them before they, they believe it. And then, and then the people around them, they, their peers have to develop a consensus and you, and you are fighting and struggling against 
that established worldview. Um, it, it happens again and again, uh, and you know, in, in in a very predictable cycle. It, though I, I will say, you know, certainly uh, the events of 2017, when the New York Times for article first came out, and to the stars, and um, you know, and the, the bold statements by Lou Elizondo, uh, it was quite heartening, you know, like, wow, you know, we, we're all like going nuts. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, and we were also, you know, uh, suspicious, like, who is this intelligence guy? And what are these, intel- you know, what's the, you know, intelligence uh, process behind this? And we don't know. Um, and we, we all, you know, watch it uh, as it advances. Um, but certainly uh, uh, the ball has been kicked further down the field and the door has cracked slightly open and um, the Navy has made uh, statements that um, they, they don't know what certain things are. I mean, that's, it's a major step for the Navy. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's um, things are changing. Uh, we hope they continue to change. Uh, we don't know. And since, since we don't know, uh, you know, I, I, sort of take an existentialist approach and that is, you know, you, we may not get help from anybody else anywhere. (laughs) We may not get any help. We have to take responsibility for our own lives and take responsibility for the situation and do what we as individuals can do within our power. Right. Right. Um, I hope the listener will let me um, vent just a little bit more (laughs) on Lawrence Krauss's article because I just want to read through as quickly as I can. There's kind of a, there's kind of a lot to it, but um, his four, his five arguments. Uh, maybe I'll get through all these of why that uh, extraterrestrials in no way can be here. Number one, the laws of physics: travel from another star in any reasonable time requires near light speed travel. A ship propelled by onboard conventional rocket fuel. See, he's saying that. Let me. Pardon me. Let, let me stop you right there because it's a wonderful uh, statement by Mr. Miller about that. He says, for, "Forgive me for interrupting. I'll, I'll let you come." No, no, that's fine. Yeah. But he, he says, um, "I said, Michael, Michael, you know that in existing theory, um, it, the closer you come to the speed of light, you gain infinite mass, so you could never yeah. go faster than the speed of light because you gain right. infinite mass." He says, "Paul, Paul, yes, you're right. You can't go faster than the speed of light in this dimension." You know, so yeah. I mean, Michael's an incredible wit, and I could just the numerous things he said are just incredibly insightful. Yeah, Uh, and so yeah, okay, go on. What else is this? Well, yeah, he he discusses the mass right here, uh, just a little further down. But being, but even using nuclear uh, fusion, one would use more than two thousand times the mass of a ship in fuel for each acceleration and deacceleration to and from near light speed. Basic physics constraints simplify that any onboard propulsion technology that could power a conventional ship-sized spacecraft to travel from one solar system to another at near light speed and decelerate within our solar system without... So I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to cut these down a little bit. Um, <laughs> Uh, this one I like. Number two is pretty funny. It only hurts when well, you stop. I, I, I want to re- respond to that, what you just said, though. Okay, sure. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, 
Yeah, it takes a lot of energy to uh, travel from one place to the other and to decelerate, etc. And then here's another remark from uh, Mr. Miller. Uh, unless you use a portal. <laughs> <laughs> or the wormhole is, uh, and we may talk a little bit about that because I saw the laser-driven wormhole or something like that. I'll talk to you a little bit about that in a right. minute. <clears throat> so number two, it only hurts when you stop. Some reports claim that UAPs travel extremely fast and stop or turn instantly, no matter what the propulsion system G-forces experience in such a maneuver would be enough to crush steel, not to mention the unfortunate aliens inside. This is unless one had inertial dampers like they have in Star Trek, which alas, our science fiction techno babble. In other words, he's just dismissing this whole thing of these, um, say, David Fravor or other people um, actually see, seeing on radar, radar and other um, uh, yeah. sensors, these things stopping and, and doing, you know, up to 1,500 um, Gs in their maneuvers and things like that. And he's saying, he's basically saying it's all hogwash. Yeah, can, can, I, can I respond to that? Yeah, now? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you forgive me to interrupt because I, I know no, arguments and, and you know, it, uh, I, you know, it, it makes for an interesting thing, right? You know, the, the polarity of perspectives, you know, that, you know, and, and I know you don't feel like this, but you're saying how other people may think. So here's another thing. Um, you know, let's talk about Fravor and Dietrich, you know, and, and I, I think you can see on Dietrich's face in her 60 minutes, um, uh, show in, in the 60 minutes show that she's experiencing ontological shock. You know, it's like, Hey, this doesn't fit in the box. And yet I've seen it, you know, and, uh, and ontological shock is a wonderful term. Uh, uh, um, uh, John Mack, the Harvard professor coined the term. And so this fellow, you know, is going to experience some ontological shock. He hasn't yet. And in fact, you know, you, you read about things like Sam Harris, who's a leading intellectual of the day, yeah. is, is saying like, these guys are going to struggle in the future. I mean, th there's going to be some problems here where they, you know, hit that wall of ontological shock and, the, and their whole worldview is going to change. And, and that's something Lou is expressing. Um, and he knows it. And I, and I have a sense of what he knows. And, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be a challenge for these people. They, their whole lives and livelihoods are, are dependent on it. They're going to struggle. Uh, in, in the past, you know, that might have been a, uh, a, a, a jab from a, of a you know, a, a weak jab against a, a giant. But, you know, even in that recent Twitter thing, I guess you, you might have followed this, you know, Dietrich challenged the Degrassi uh, Tyson head on, you know, I don't know. You saw that thing. It was amazing. She says, um, she says, uh, you know, this is all social bias. She says, I, you know, I teach social bias or something. And then, you know, um, there, there was uh, three points in it. And then she addressed all three of them. And like, you know, she's got gravity. I mean, she's a fighter pilot, an extraordinary person. I, I mean, I'm afraid to fly in a plane. <laughs> she, she does combat, miss, you know, whatever, you know, um, it, she she has faced the ontological shock and gone and it's struggling to get to the other side. These other fellows have not, and they will. And you know, if if statements by Sam Harris 
and statements by a lot of other important people, you know, um, are, you know, are shown, you know, open up things, you know, we're all going to see some, some big changes. Yeah. I, I, I like everything you just said. Um, and um, I'm, I've been trying to get Alex Dietrich on this, um, on this show. If anyone knows a way to reach her, she has a Twitter, but you can't message her on Twitter. And uh, she was on with Mick West and um, she kind of put him in his place a few times. So if anyone knows how to uh, reach her, please uh, let me know. I'd love to have her on this show. Um, you're right. It was, it was a new paradigm for her to swallow, to understand. And uh, in the 60 minutes program with her, she puts that across very uh, well. I think she, she describes the feeling and how it kind of changed everything for her. Oh, it's coming right from the heart. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also want to say it, it kind of like a different approach. Um, my approach is to, um, you know, you know, listen to the naysayers some, but not devote too much energy to them, but rather to devote energy to the forward-looking people, to the, um, you know, next-generation people uh, who have extraordinary ideas. And I just know a number of people with extraordinary ideas. Um, and, you know, rather to devote energies to that, um, because I, I see a lot of um, fighting on, on Reddit and, and Twitter and, and you know, attacks against McQuest, you know, whatever. Uh, he is who he is. You know, you can't uh, convert someone with beliefs that deep, you know. Well, I've had him on the show uh, three times. And so I'm, I'm open to listening to skeptics. And, um, you know, it's kind of, I think it was the sort of the irony in this is uh, I had him on and uh, I had Kevin Day. I couldn't have Kevin Day from the USS Nimitz um, who was in charge of all, all the radar um, on the Princeton, uh, but during the Nimitz um, situation. Uh, basically, by the time I got finished with my talk with uh, Kevin Day about what it could or could not be, um, Mick West actually came back on and said, yeah, I understand now why it, it couldn't have been you know, uh, uh, an F-18 Hornet or whatever it is he thought it might be. Um, he said, I understand now why. And, and it wasn't like uh, a few weeks later, he was on some other program, um, you know, again, saying the same thing that it was, an, you know, an F-18. Well, yeah, uh, not a, a pack. Yeah, yeah, you're doing something really important here. And that is that you're archiving the, you know, the um, ontological perspectives and paradigms of the day. You know, it, it, it is valuable what you are doing. You are making giving a permanent record of uh, of um, you, you know the the outlooks of this time period, and we will see how they will change. Uh, and you know, people say you know that there was a before time and an after time, and and you know, um, yeah. So so I, I think I, we are. I laud your your. You know, willing to open mindedness, perhaps, you know, to to get these skeptics on board and to record their statements. And, you know, we will see as, you know, so many other political events that have changed over time. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that anyone is better than anyone else or any thoughts are. Um, it's just of what we can all learn together. You know, I, I wouldn't like say, 
oh, hey, Mick West, guess what? You were wrong all along. And we're, you know, we in the UFO community were right. That's not going to help anyone. But just, um, you know, it, it's something, you know, hopefully we'll all um, be in agreement someday. You mentioned earlier uh, Reddit and um, on social media. I kind of stay off all that stuff because there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of infighting and there's a lot of uh, jealousy and mudslinging. Um, so I kind of stay off of all that, but I do hear, you know, bits and pieces of, of what's going on out there. But it sounds like you get right into it and you, 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 you read everything that's happening when it comes to this topic. I sure do. And I have some other observations about uh, just sort of getting back to the consciousness thing. Uh, just some notes I've taken. Uh, encounters are defined by the awareness that one is dealing with something that has a terrifying speed of intelligence and something that has an intelligence that, you know, kind of speaks directly inside the mind. And that, that's kind of what a download in is. It's sort of something that interacts inside the mind instead of, you know, somebody talking to you outside the mind. So, and, and something that has an extraordinary speed of intelligence, an instantaneous speed of intelligence. And another thing is uh, feeling that one's spirit is being pulled out of one's body, upwards, downwards, sidewards, uh, the feeling that the body is being rotated. So these, you know, we, we talk about these senses, you know, like we have the sense of eyesight, smell, taste, hearing, touch, but it, it, it's not so much discussed um, or, or we don't have the same language um, for uh, the sense of movement and, and how one's body feels, you know, moving, you know, you, 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 uh, you know, maybe even things like depression, your body is being pulled downward uh, you know, elation, your body moves up, but, but more intense experiences of, is of that, that, that are really extraordinary that, that some people might, uh, find some familiarity with what I'm saying. Another thing is, um, a, a unity state, the feeling that one's identity has merged with the environment, a sense of love and service to all remorse for all and any harm done akin to the lo loss of self and in the non, um, near-death experience. Um, so that, that, that unity state, that, that's another thing that often comes with these um, encounters. And then uh, screen memories, the feeling that one has memories that are unnatural, that may not be actual lived memories, uh, but are gestalt or complete memories with visuals, sight, sound, and smell. And this is, uh, you know, one um, perspective put, put, out, put forth by uh, Dr. Joseph Burks, who uh, describes that he calls it a theater of the mind uh, where th these things are, um, you know, they, they may be mental implants and such. All, all very interesting. I know there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of people talking about the relationship between consciousness and, uh, you know, everything that's going on as, you know, when it comes to the UFOs as well. And, your work with the uh, Bigelow Institute is kind of fascinating. I don't know if you want to talk on that. We're going to be taking calls in about five minutes from now. Um, yeah. But, I, uh -huh. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I basically edited a paper by a fellow named Matty Pitkinen. And Matty is a, um, is a physicist. He has a degree um, from, uh, I think it's the University of Helsinki in Finland, 
And he's a dissident uh, scientist in that he's uh, gone away from, uh, you know, the some of the uh, established phys- physicists and developed his own ideas. And so the there was a, a um, uh, prize that Mr. Bigelow put forth, um, uh, an essay contest. And the essay, I think the title was something like, is there evidence for uh, the continuation of consciousness after death? And good old Matty, uh, you know, he, <laughs> I mean, I have to laugh because the guy's a, a genius of a man. Uh, he, I have, I, uh, anyway, he, he has an interesting response to that question. He has some uh, science, mathematics, physics to back up his theories uh, I had the privilege of working with him and editing his his paper uh, in around November. Um, Mr. Bigelow and his um, group will um, adjudicate these um, uh, essays and and knock on wood, um, uh, Maddie will win. But uh, whether he does or doesn't, uh, I, I believe the man deserves a Nobel Prize. He's a genius. Hmm. Interesting. So um, I'm going to pull up now for um, anybody that would like to call. Here's the uh, phone number. If you're over on uh, Facebook or KGRA Radio or uh, YouTube um, Live, watching live right now, that number is 855-472-5483. Bill is standing by um, to to, uh, take your call. So we have several lines uh, anyone can call in to ask. Um, a question along any of the lines that we discussed tonight or uh, any actually new topics. You know, last time I did a, um, I did a call in show. It seemed pretty successful and I'm thinking about um, doing another one uh, just to, for all the listeners. It was a lot of great participation. I learned a lot of uh, new UFO and very interesting, um, you know, encounters that happened. It was really good to hear from the listeners. So I'm, going to plan to do that i believe the uh first um i'll have to take a look because um, i'm going to be out at the uh, international ufo Con- uh, congress in uh, september just to run that recap real quickly i'm going to take a look at my schedule and uh, just um so when it comes to the uh the first uh, let's see, that's a Tuesday on the 31st of August. That's already booked. So the following week, it looks like the call-in show, after all, is not going to be until the 21st of September. I was hoping it would be earlier than that, but we're booked right up until that time. But anyway, uh, the lines are open. Love to hear from you if you'd like to call in. Again, that number is 855-472-5483. And Bill is standing by. And if you're too shy to call, but you'd like to... Uh, Get a question in there. Please put your questions in caps if you're in chat over at uh, Facebook or on YouTube. Uh, please uh, ask away. So <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, it's an interesting conversation. Um, so just to touch a little bit more on going back to the dimensional um, discussion, uh, you were saying that um, there is there is a possibility. Um, let me just try to, or maybe you should kind of put it in a nutshell of, of how the travel would work. I understand you, you know, we did the illustrations on okay. the technology yeah. of this, but. Uh, uh, 
here, I, I got a, a little thing. I should have showed this earlier. I, imagine this ball is a photon and it, it's traveling from uh, a little chip of silicon that's uh, bounced off a, a distant planet and it's heading, going through space, getting through space. This is a photon and it hits, it hits our probe, you know, bink. <laughs> and then it gets absorbed inside the, the, um, the probe. And, and so, you know, th this photon is inside the probe. Uh, let me turn it around for you. If I do this the other way, <laughs> things are backwards. And so then we, uh, amplify we multiply that um photon and so the um the ship becomes how do i do <laughs> it's the other way it's the other way which way is it now is that is that forward okay so the ship takes on the properties of a giant electron okay and then extended out the front of that ship is something that takes on the properties of a giant um positron and, and we, we say um, it, it's a, you know, it's a process of macroscopic, um, action. You know, the, the things that happen in the quantum world, they're, they're pretty amazing. And, you know, if we take those things that happen in the quantum world and we make them at the macro level, that's as big as human beings. So this positron, you know, <laughs> you know, it's kind of big, you know, I hear that it's, we say, I think Michael said that the probe that they saw apparently was about 15 feet or so, like six feet high and, and 12 feet across. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. But um, so an electron, we have an electron here that that's, <laughs> I keep spinning that, an electron that's, a, that's the size of a probe, a 12 foot object, you know? So, uh, and then, so when we have this uh, electron and positron, and then let's see if I have it here. Uh, that, then we have another electron and positron. This is from oops, <laughs> this is from the the original photon. And then there's a kind of a swapping of things where where this electron is going to match that positron that originally came from the star, you know, the distant thing. And then uh, oops, the other one, where's the you know the other positron uh, goes into another dimension or, or you know you know something like that, but um, it, it's a swapping of positions and it's not a rocket paradigm. You know, it is this quantum properties here. And, and so let me just ask you with this whole theory, um, is it a low energy or a high energy yield to get something like this to propagate? Right. So, uh, um, you know, the short answer is there was some idea that they they would um, use something like the the um, the nuclear power of you know like a nuclear submarine um, and, and I, I forget the figures right now but you know submarines you know some of the military submarines are, are powered by nuclear power plants so the idea was to get you know maybe a, a couple or, or so of these uh, nuclear generators you know, inside the probe. So that's a problem, you know, is there size to do that? Some, you know, some to work on, but there's also this thing of like, you may not need such enormous amounts of power because you've got something spinning, you know, what does a tornado do? You know I mean? It, you know, a tornado is incredibly destructive power because it's spinning, you know, 
and then um, you know it, it's uh, it's a has a strong um, uh, magnetic uh, charge to it. it. There's a lot going on this in this thing, and and so if you have multiple you know forces focusing on a point at you know high speed, you, you may not need such enormous amounts of power. It, it, it's a um, it's a facile attack like oh you know you don't have enough power to do it hey they're not musicians <laughs> that you know i mean i'm not a scientist i can't fully defend this to every physicist in the world but this is along the lines of the thinking wow interesting well i think i have a actually a friend on the line uh from michigan phil is that you phil from michigan the phil i know that's the phil you know home of the swamp gas <laughs> How you doing, Phil? Welcome to the show. You have a, a question or a comment tonight? I have a comment, and it's about the um, Nick West being. I'm sorry. There's lots. There's there's lots of feedback going on here. All right. Um, I'm wondering if uh, if that's happening. Maybe uh, maybe you should. Uh, Hang up and uh, Bill, uh, just call right back and Bill will bring you in and uh, we'll try it again. So go ahead. We'll we'll wait to hear back from you. Uh, we have another another caller, but Bill, uh, uh, let's get uh, let's get Phil back on again. Um, so uh, we'll just wait for that. Um, so- I'll, say it, I'll say it again. Uh, uh- Martin, you know, our archivists of the future are going to be really grateful that you recorded, you know, the, the different perspectives at this time period. Because, you know, I, I'm an archivist myself. I, I love, you know, our, 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 you know, archival work. And it, it's great to get these opinions. They're not going to last, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, get them yeah. down. Why not? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Phil, why don't you try it now? He's back. Okay. Yeah, there's no feedback now. Yeah, my comment was um, Mick West gets a lot of airtime. I yeah. hear him everywhere, and he has no credentials to do what he's doing. He's a bloody video game programmer, and yet he's treated like some kind of god. And I just kind of wonder why he gets so much deference when he's – He's actually a member of an organization called the uh, CSI, and it used to be called PSYCOP, and he's a fellow with them. And if anybody's followed their career, they make a habit of belittling everybody who doesn't believe what they do. So my suggestion is I think people in the UFO community should start becoming aggressive at people like Mick West and and Tyson and that other yo-yo that you were talking about that did that article. Um, anyway, I've I've done venting. I just wanted to get that out there. Well, you know, I I I feel Phil. Uh, thank you for that. And um, I feel like it seems like every time in ufology, every every moment in ufology has that type of person. You know, there's Michael Shermer. Uh, you know, Michael had on the show, actually, I thought he was kind of a gentleman. Uh, he was uh, respectful and all that. But there are those uh, people like Phil uh, Class from, you know, way back that um, 
are, are quite arrogant. And um, I do agree there's, you know, there's a difference between uh, skepticism and debunking. And also you, you make a good point where, um, you know, why is, why is uh, uh, West everywhere when uh, Mick West everywhere on all these programs, we're talking, you know, news programs and everything as the go-to expert. I think he's out there because he's a squeaky axle. He's, he's uh, really out there blasting away. And I, I don't I, know any I, other reason. Perspective on that. I, I believe he's being put in that position by the organization CSI. They're a very ah. powerful group. It, oh, okay. Group, and they're using him. You know, he never mentions this. He never mentions that he's a member of CSI, but he's a CSI fellow. He's not just an ordinary believer in the mission of CSI. He's one of them. Interesting. That's a, that's a skeptics group. The, the skeptical Inquirer, is that those fellows? Or? Yes, yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I pick up their magazine once in a while. I look at it, you know, and, you know, it, it just keeps us on our toes. It, you know, keeps our pencils sharp and all, you know. But, uh <laughs> Certainly, I feel very differently, and um, uh, it, we need to be respectful. Um, but I, I think we also need to um, look at people who are, who are really forward-thinking and um, encourage them and, and give them strength as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, my perspective on CSI is they're very dishonest, and they're not very nice people, and. You just have, I've experienced them for the last 40 years or, or so, however long they've been in existence. And they're just a nasty bunch of scientists that don't like anything that's beyond what they believe in. Anyway, I've taken up enough time. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you, Phil. And by the way, Phil is a scientist. So thanks for the call, Phil. Yeah. All right. Thank you. you bet. All right. Yeah. Take care. There are people doing extraordinary things. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, people can have whatever beliefs they, they want. But um, yeah, just just like Alan Bean said in the uh, clip earlier, you know, it, it, it doesn't do any harm if the people want to think that nobody landed on the moon. It, it doesn't hurt anyone, as according to him. Um, uh, there are situations where that type of stubbornness can hurt. But uh, in this particular case, I, I, I just think it... Uh, you know, can set us back. I don't know how much, uh, you know, you'd consider that hurting anyone, but uh, we have Chris on from Houston, Texas. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I'm calling about the probe itself. um, uh, I tuned in late and I, first thing I saw was the image of the three colors. And uh, I saw, I got excited because I saw something like that in 1959 when I was nine years old and I've never had an explanation for it in all those years. I've, I've read occasionally accounts from some other person who had seen, yes, who had seen something like it. The one I saw, it looked like it was, um, a few hundred feet in the air and it looked like it was slightly bigger, maybe the size of a a helicopter, but it, it really hard to tell and, and made no noise. And it came toward, I was with a friend out in a field and it came toward us, but then it turned and it landed behind trees in an area where there's over the years, there's been other activity. Um, 
and so my question is, when if you're on the ground like this gentleman was, your contact person, Mr. Miller, I think, um, if you saw that in the sky, it is already it's already done its travel version, its version of getting from there to here. It's slowed down and it's in the atmosphere, right? Or is it just an image that I was seeing? No, I mean it, it's uh, you know the term "slowed down" is is something that uh, you know these, these things they just stop instantly, and um, you know that um, there's a reason that the, the the probe has red, green, and blue colors because uh, red, green, and blue, when put together additively, uh, make white, and so um, when you have these different wavelengths, the red, blue, and green wavelength, and you put them together uh, into white uh, light, you, you have a, a, like a many different wavelengths. And um, so that that was part of the colors. And then the, the shape of the thing, the teardrop shape, um, was what was your sighting teardrop shape or was it? I couldn't, I couldn't see anything but the, the three colors. Uh, yeah, I couldn't see any structure at all. Uh, behind it, just the three, a round shape with the three parts in the sky coming toward me, but not like approaching me, but pretty, you know, like I said, looked like it was a couple hundred feet up maybe. And then it turned and went in down behind trees uh, where there's a creek. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) what can I say? You're validating it. It's wonderful. I mean, it's very exciting to hear you say this. I mean, it's you know, trying to see all this material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you're you're validating me. I'm validating you here. <laughs> that, that's pretty incredible. Um, so, so the other question is, uh, mm-hmm. assuming that it slowed down, uh, I understand that part now. But it, was I in any danger? Was there like some uh, threat from that? Uh, <laughs> you know, I I think I think I can say that. Uh, Mr. Miller's experience, the, the object went down below trees as well. So that there's sort of a, a parallel of phrases there. It's kind of interesting. Wow, I missed, yeah, I missed that part. Uh, yeah, you, you said that, and, and I, I might not have mentioned it before, but Mr. Miller has said that as well. But uh, the <laughs> what has happened to you, you know, you, you've lived, it seems, many years uh, since you were nine years old, and, you know, and you're still... You're still going, and um, maybe you've gotten oh, some, right. <laughs> you know. Maybe always, uh, no extraterrestrial has ever hurt me. Plenty of humans have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know you're know, you an open-minded fellow. That's the important point. And, you know, um, and you saw something extraordinary. And, and now I'm saying that somebody else has had that same experience. So. I love I love this explanation. I don't know if it's you know your physicist friends may say it's not completely on point, but I, it's very fascinating. Uh, Chris, let me ask you something. Did this happen to you um, in the same area in Texas and Houston? Yes, yes, yes. And I've told oh, it before. I've had other experiences, but uh, in Houston. Yeah, and about, about how long ago was how long ago was that? The other experiences or this one? No, no, this one in particular. Well, 1959. So I was nine years old. Um, oh, I see. And yeah. uh, I'm 71 now. And, and uh, uh, I might have been, you know, I might have, I might have been 10 to 10. But I think I was nine. Um, and, and it was a part of Houston where I grew up. And I had had other 
odd experiences on that creek. Um, it's like a hotbed of activity over there in that particular creek south of Houston, a creek that happens to uh, empty directly into Clear Lake, which is where NASA is. And, uh, of course, that's led me to imagine some things. But yeah, I want to validate your experience again and, and say that many people are saying that unusual things uh, can sometimes happen in unique places on Earth. Uh, I I don't fully understand. I don't understand that at all. But I have heard other people say that. Um, knowledgeable people say that. And and I, I want to show you another picture here. You know, while I'm at it, uh, you know, when you you get a uh, a magnet, you know, a bar magnet, and you you put the iron filings uh, down, and, and you see that ovoid shape. Well, looky here, our, our like uh, oval, and this is quite intentional. Uh, fits in to that ovoid shape where there's a North Pole and a South Pole. And, um, you know, the, the field lines, you know, t take on that take on that shape, if you can see. And then the tail, you know, has this kind of corona as well. Uh, you know, you, you put down a magnet, you're going to see the, that thing. So this is not a rocket ship, you know. <laughs> right, right. Oh, it almost seems like a, a an... Uh, electronic or a, a um, um, quantum version of a must tunnel through the underground, you know, you're creating a vacuum, a, a sort of a, a, a um, what's it called? A, a quantum vacuum pulling from your, you're pushing your presence in front of you and then matching, meeting up with it. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Uh, also, just to go back to anecdotes, uh, there's this fellow, I can't remember the author name, Sir, Sir something, Chichester something. He's the guy who wrote Lonely Sky and the Sea. Uh, there's a fellow, he, he sailed the Atlantic by himself, and then he saw something in the sky that he said was, uh, I believe he said it was teardrop shaped and red, white, red, red green, and blue. Uh, so that's another person who, you know, <laughs> he saw an object in the sky that, you know, it was not an airplane, and this is way back. I don't know what the forties or whatever, thirties or something. Uh, I, yeah, I might have read that account. Yeah, uh, sir. Uh, what's his name? Lonely sky in the sea. He, he uh, maybe it's yeah. the fifties, but um, uh, he's a great writer too. Chris, thank you, thank you so much for the call. Oh, thank, thank you so much again. All great, right, yeah, great work. <laughs> Good to talk to you. So the lines are are open, wide open right now. Again, that number is 855-472-5483. Earlier on in chat, um, we had a question that came up that I meant to post. And uh, that uh, person wanted to know what your thoughts were on uh, the unidentified objects that people claim to see that are, you know, triangle shaped, very large. Um, do, you, do you think that... Uh, I think the opinion was, um, are you looking at this as a secret military or any parts of these secret military or could something like this um, evolve without, um, you know, someone using that technology that you're talking about? Well, um, the interesting thing is, um, you know, that historically they talk about the TR-3B was some um, alleged military craft that was triangular. And then uh, there were reports in, in the Belgium Air Force reports and the, the Belgian citizen reports of 
UFO flap in the 80s of triangular yeah. shaped objects. And then um, the, the significant one, I think, is the um, reportage on um, the Phoenix Lights, where it was either a, a boomerang shaped or triangular shaped object. And um, it, I, I was very much an activist in the UFO community at the time of the Phoenix Lights. And it, again, it was a very exciting time. And then we were, um, you know, uh, concerned by the remarks of Fife Symington at the time, and he, he mocked it by uh, dressing in a costume of an alien. Uh, but, you know, as we all know, um, Fife Symington has turned around and said uh, he could not explain what he saw. So, and he was a, a knowledgeable pilot. So, again, it's, it's, it's a mystery. We don't know. Um, and again, I I support advocacy to, um, the the people in in a representative government should know what's going on. Right. Right. Um, so we have, uh, we could take one more call if someone else would like to call in. Other than that, we're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, we have about four minutes left to the show only. So if you'd like to call, you better, uh, call in quick. If you would, um, I'm going to be taking that number down. So, um, um, so that's interesting that you were really, um, in, involved in the UFO uh, world or really paying attention back during the Phoenix lights that, um, it's unfortunate that a lot of what, um, people see when they're looking are not the Phoenix lights. A lot of film was taken of the flares. Unfortunately, there's supposedly only one real good video of, uh, what people were seeing and the rest is the flares from what I understand, but that was, uh, that was an incredible, um, sighting. Um, some people reported, you know, I had Peter Davenport on this show at one point, and he was saying that, uh, um, by the judgment of, uh, some accounts that could, that craft could have been up to eight miles wide, you know, which is, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, a minimum at a few miles or something. And to me, when, you know, the, the skeptics are saying, oh, that's something military that we developed. I, I don't I don't foresee that. Uh, I can't imagine that we could have something that large that we could house and uh, keep secret um, all the way back to 1997. You know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, one more comment I'd like to make. Uh, I, I, get, I don't have it here. I can't put it up. I did put it on our, on our Facebook page. But there is a pilot, a military pilot, talking about what sounds like a tic-tac-shaped um, object that he saw in 1931. It's an interview from 1931. He talks about a pearl. It's like a pearl with a tail. And then it, it disappeared and came back. Uh, very fascinating. But one of the questions I have for you is uh, in this theory that you're talking about, this travel theory, um, a lot of people say that they see a UFO and then it blinks out. Would this also be the case of this travel that you're talking about because it's a, another dimension? It's using another dimension? Yeah, right on the point. This is not uh, standard travel. This is like one place, you know, going into another dimension and being in another place. It, it, it's a different way of thinking. And, you know, something blanks out, it's 
blinking to another place somewhere else. It's blinking on. <laughs> it's a different way of thinking. It's, it's a paradigm shift. Um, so that's mm. a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. All, all fascinating. Well, um, it's been a real pleasure. Now, are you, did I, when we were talking off air, did you say you might write another book? Yeah. Like I'm gathering notes now toward making another book, uh, with Mr. Miller. Um, he has, you know, some responses to the critiques that we've received and he has some new ideas. Um, it's just at the beginning stages. Um, but I, I, again, I want to just say like my, my first book was, was this one and, uh, it, it's kind of a thinner book and, and, you know, had kind of fewer details on it. Uh, the second book is about 290 pages and, uh, you know, so, there are developments of things, you know, and I just want to emphasize that, you know, you, you know, just like making a light bulb or making an electric car, you know, it starts out kind of rough and it gets more refined. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, thanks. Whoops. Uh, we had a caller we missed. That's too bad. Uh, Kevin. So sorry, Kevin, we missed you. Uh, actually, uh, uh, Bill, let me know right now, if he's still on the line, we can, we can pull him in. Um, if you do have the extra time. Oh, he's gone. All right. Well, that's too bad. Sorry, Kevin. Hope you call back uh, next time. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show this evening. It was, uh, it was a very interesting talk. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. You're very kind. And I really appreciate you allowing me the opportunity to, to talk with you. Excellent. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. All right, everyone. So next week we have Chris Spark on and uh, he's uh, I believe he's an actor, uh, but he's also he also has a a book um, that has to do with, um, I think, uh, aliens in the human race or something like that. Or um, anyway, I can't really remember his book right now. I don't have it up here in front of me, but it's uh, but it's something that he usually doesn't write about. Uh, He's an interesting guy. What a background this guy has. And he'll be a fascinating guest. So you can look forward to that next week. Uh, Thank you, Bill, for uh, taking the calls and uh, doing a great job at KGRA Radio as usual. And thank you, everyone, for watching. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky. And we'll see you next week.